Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Etienne and Dimitri. Today, we have the pleasure of sharing with you a conversation with Steve Gabriel from Wellspring Forest Farm. Steve has written a great book that we really enjoyed and we highly recommend to you. And so we were super excited to have him on the podcast. I really enjoyed this episode and Steve manages to situate silver pasture and trees and a broader ecological understanding of the farm, but he also gives us plenty of practical information on how to go about planting out trees and managing animals. So I think you'll come out with a really exciting overview of silver pasture, but also um, full of practical details to make it work on your land. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Steve. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So good to be here with you all. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you here, and I'm sure we're going to have a, a fascinating um, conversation. Both of us uh, read your book um, when it came out and, and really enjoyed it, so we're very excited to have you. Maybe to start things off, you could tell us a bit about yourself, uh, how you got into agriculture, and how you got to start the farm you have at the moment. Yeah, I came to agriculture <clears throat> a couple ways. My grandfather was a farmer in Illinois in the Midwest. And so um, experienced a bit in my family of uh, sort of the post-World War II farming era. My aunts and uncles all grew up on a farm and then promptly fled <laughs> to get off the farm and have better paying jobs. My grandfather always um, loved farming and eventually got out of it too, but always had a couple acres of of corn in his back backfield and um, and kept bees and things like that. And he was always just someone I admired and liked hanging out with. And I just liked uh, riding the tractor with him. Uh, so that was definitely an influence. And then uh, for me, um, as, I, as I started to, to grow up, uh, I really recognized my, my deep love for the forest and the woods and, and looked for a way to basically have a job that allowed me to be outside as much as possible which um, started out as like studying recreation and, and thinking I was going to be a river guide or something like that or, or take people out into the, into the woods, but um, was, was really hit with the reality of the environmental crisis. And, and as I've learned, the social crisis that really uh, goes alongside that and um, realized I probably couldn't spend my life just uh, enjoying the woods, but also needed to, to take an active part in, in restoration and reclamation and, and trying to, uh, re, you know, restore health in some way. Um, and so that led me really down a path of um, start, starting at, at forestry uh, school and then um, feeling a bit disillusioned with the, the overwhelming focus on just timber as the only value expressed in our economy for the forest. Um, and eventually started to find uh, small little kernels of possibility. Um, for me, uh, producing maple syrup was one of the first things that captured my attention where I saw something really interesting and cool that could be done in the woods that also provided income and sustenance for folks. And 
Um, I grew up, you know, I grew up in a part of the world where that's a really rich part of of history and of relationship to land and relationship to the changing of the seasons. And so I just love the process. And um, that was really the gateway for me, um, teaching youth about maple sugaring as a way to connect them to the natural world. And from there, um, we thinned our sugar bush one year to, to support the trees there and had a bunch of logs and happened to learn from a farmer nearby about, um, about uh, growing shiitakes on logs. And so it's just kind of like crescendoed from there into different things, realizing that the forest could be a place that provides a lot of um, support for humans and also uh, could be a way to, to steward the land. Um, and so, yeah, that's been the, the journey that was, you know, that was almost 20 years ago now. And then it's really been jumping in full and trying to figure out what that actually looks like and, and realizing the the dreamy ide- idealized uh, version when I first started is um, is very different than the practical day-to-day and the, the little details that, that are inevitably part of, of agroforestry and forestry and land stewardship. And can you tell us a bit more specifically about uh, Wellspring Forest Farm, uh, how you started that and, and what kind of, what is it, what kind of local context uh, surrounds it? Yeah, so we're we're in the um, the Finger Lakes region of right, pretty much in the middle of New York State in the Northeast U.S. It's a cold, temperate climate, um, rather humid, and we have four pretty distinct seasons. Usually, <laughs> um, it used to be it used to be pretty guaranteed that we'd uh, we'd start freezing up sometime in November, December, and, and the ground would stay frozen until, you know, March. Um, I used to tap trees in late February and early March. And that was, again, almost 20 years ago. And now we tap sometimes in late January. Um, I think the earliest was even like January 10th or something. Uh, and so just in my short existence here, uh, things are definitely changing. Uh, we can't count on the ground being frozen in the same way. And that has a lot of implications for ecosystem health. Um, generally, we're blessed with a really even spread of rainfall throughout the year. Um, but that's also changing. Our rain is now coming in in more sporadic events. We'll have short periodic droughts. And when the rain comes, it often comes in really heavy events all at once. Uh, so, But we're fortunate to have <laughs> usually uh, ample access to water as part of our systems. And this part of the world... Um, traditionally uh, is, is forested land. Uh, and then we could talk about the nuances of that. But um, the Haudenosaunee people or the, the Goyankono is the Cayuga Nation who traditionally stewarded these lands for thousands of years before colonization, um, managed the landscape very much in uh, agriculture and agroforestry mindset, although they wouldn't have called it that, right? Because agroforestry used to just be called farming or land stewardship. It's kind of recently we've had to name it as something separate. Um, but our farm is is about, uh, see, 45 acres. Some of it we have title to and some of it we, we lease. And we run a mixed, small, diversified farm. Our main crop is mushrooms, both outdoors, and we do some indoor production as well. We have our sheep and our ducks, which we utilize a lot in civil pasture systems and um and we produce maple syrup of course uh both on our land and some and some trees we we lease up the road from us so we have to haul sap every spring so 
uh, our seasons are pretty dynamic. And so um, we're in a time right now where it's the quietest, November and December. But again, you know, starting the new year, we'll be looking to to the trees to, to figure out when we need to tap in. And maple for us really starts the whole season. And in terms of local markets, are you able to commercialize locally or do you have to go a bit further? So far, we're, we're in an area that's um, really supportive of small local farms and values that both like direct customers as well as um, as well as uh, chefs and things like that in restaurants. But we also have a pretty, pretty sizable tourism um, industry around here. People visit these lakes and spend time around here. And so, um, yeah, we mostly um, had not had a hard time um, unloading our products uh, pretty much yeah. off the farm or not too far from it. And um, I know you mentioned mushrooms. I mean, there's so many things that you do that are fascinating. Um, and you talk about these in, in also your, your first book, if I'm, if I'm correct, Farming the Woods. Um, but today we thought about maybe zooming in more into the silver pasture systems. Um, one of the reasons is that there's already actually a few podcasts that we listened to before this one where you talk a bit more about mushroom cultivation. And we'll make sure we'll put some links so that our listeners can access that knowledge. But yeah, today, looking a bit more specifically to silver pasture, I was wondering if you could uh, give us a bit more detail of an overview, maybe, you know, the number of animals you have and, and the different um, plots of land uh, of forest or pasture or, you know, mixed um, forest and pasture. Yeah, definitely. And um, what I think is beautiful about silver pasture in general is the, while the mushrooms from a income standpoint uh, make up the majority of, of that aspect of our farm, the silver pasture is easily the, the system that impacts the acreage, the most amount of land. So the mushrooms actually, we grow on um, like less than a tenth of an acre, but the silver pasture is almost, and eventually will be, I think, throughout the majority of the farm. And, and so I think that's a really important aspect is that some agroforestry practices are very um, confined or very specific to types of the land, you know, different types of landscape or different types of ecosystem, but the silver pasture really can fit in in almost any, any open niche. Um, and that's the way we've been thinking about it. So, so I think of the whole farm as a silver pasture, it's just in different stages of uh, succession. Um, when we arrived and we started, Stewarding this piece of land um, around 2010, we brought some mushroom logs here and started tapping trees and slowly worked into the silver pasture. Uh, the farm was pretty much 50% open pasture and 50% forest. And, and to me, that really speaks to the way modern agriculture has subdivided and, and put these, these different ecosystems in boxes. It's like the edge between the field and the forest could not be more dramatic. It just one stops and the other starts, <laughs> you know, mm, and, yeah. and the edges are only determined by where the last person decided to turn their tractor when they were mowing or plowing or whatever they were doing. So it's, it's just a bunch of boxes in our landscape and it's a bunch of boxes with these harsh edges. Uh, and that has nothing to do with the way, uh, again, in traditional indigenous people stewarded the landship or the way um, nature creates really dynamic edges between different ecosystems. So, for us, our first uh, attention was to to look at those elements, especially around water and hydrology and slope, and try to ignore what this the sort of impact that had been placed on the landscape for decades and decades and decades, and really look at the landscape from a watershed perspective, from a forest perspective, from an animal perspective, from 
from something different and try to see different lines, see different boundaries. And, and then think about the civil pasture as one way to support the restoration work. So some of our civil pasture is creek restoration work also. And some of our civil pasture is forest management. Some of our civil pasture is planting trees in a field to, to break the wind, to create uh, a better microclimate for the grazing animals. But it's, it's for us really uh, important that it reflects what the land wants, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, before we impose an idea of what it looks like, and I always like to say with silvopasture, a lot of pictures out there show these like grids of trees. And I, I, there's, there's appropriate places for rows and, and, um, and certainly um, patterns like that, but um, there's so much opportunity to integrate silvopasture in so many different patterns and so many different processes. And it starts with what the land is, is asking for, I think, and starts from that lens. And then we can blend that with our goals for, uh, for production. So our main animal is, is sheep. We have uh, in our uh, grazing season, we'll run about 60 or 65 lambs and, and ewes together. The breed we use is called Katahdin, and Katahdin is uh, named after Mount Katahdin, which is in the state of Maine. It's a sheep breed, really interesting history. It took several English, uh, traditional English breeds and crossed them with the St. Croix, which is a Caribbean breed. Uh, so it's a hair sheep, does not uh, produce wool, and we chose that intentionally. And it's also a sheep that um, breed that really tolerates uh, pretty cold conditions as well as pretty hot conditions and is is really also really uh resilient to parasites so it kind of seemed like a win-win-win <laughs> uh well, yeah. when we found them and and what we've also found since working with them on the landscape is they're phenomenal browsers meaning they um they prefer woody uh vegetation almost equally to to pasture which is a huge advantage when we're when we're focused on hopefully utilizing both of those types of vegetation in the, in the grazing plan. So not all sheep are like that. Um, and of course, not all goats will graze. Some will just go after the woody stuff. So we really found a great, um, a great breed to work with. We'll definitely come back to that because it's, it's a really fascinating aspect of silver pasture. But before we, we progress in the conversation, I was wondering if you can give us um, a description of the different ecosystems you have then, because, you know, you've, you've mentioned that you have a diversity of, of uh, ecosystems on the farm and clearly you're trying to really base your production on them. Sure. Yeah. And we have, <clears throat> if, if folks are interested on our, um, on our farm homepage, we have kind of a Google earth tour that you can take and actually see like videos of different parts of the farm, uh, which is something that I started working on. We do an online civil pasture class and I started sharing that as a way to, um, snap some video of different aspects of it. Uh, but I would say like, um, we don't have like amazingly old, <laughs> like healthy forest. Most of the landscape was, was really abandoned farmland. Um, but we uh, exist at the top of the watershed and it's a pretty high elevate, relatively high elevation for where we are a pretty windy site because of that. Um, and the ecosystems, what we have is a, a large pond in the, in the middle of the farm. It's about two and a half acres that a lot of the water uh, flows um, into. And so there's sort of a, a vein of a uh, riparian area of a wetland that, that then drains into a smaller uh, seasonal creek or, or something that flows periodically and then down into this pond. And then we have another watershed that kind of sits just along one of our boundaries of the property that 
as we learned, actually, harvests a lot of the water from the whole hillside because of the way they chose on the roads to dig all the ditches. So a lot of the ditches empty right into this area, and it can cause a lot of problems during these heavy rain events. So at the bottom of our land, we have a gully that's uh, almost six feet deep. Um, You can almost stand in it and be lost in it if you're short enough and um, we're working to restore that, but it's a product of these these heavy rain events that are just eroding the heck out of the land. So, so we have kind of this water, t- two watersheds flowing through the land, um, and then we have a lot of different little forest types. This this farm actually was um, an old nursery, and so there's kind of interesting diversity in the tree species. But we have um, some nice forests dominated with uh, eastern white pine, and so more of a pine uh, area, and some pine plantations as well that are areas we're really valuing uh, for winter um, winter livestock quarters for the sheep because they're nice and sheltered and on the drier part of the land. And we have a nice, of course, sugar maple stand, which is probably our healthiest stand of woods, only about a couple acres of the land. And then the rest is this mosaic of what happens when uh, farmers just stop um, clearing. And so it's a mix of sort of native tree species and so-called, you know, quote-unquote invasive species. I don't like to use that word, and I actually really think there's value to some of the species that have shown up on the landscape, especially from a fodder uh, a livestock value, but um, we can talk about that more, some of our research, looking at different species and what, what kind of um, nutrition they really offer to our livestock, yeah. One of the big topics that we wanted to to talk to you about um, today, and one of the things that also really inspired us uh, when we were reading your book, I actually have the copy in front of me right now, um, is um, is when you mentioned that you you're trying to incentivize a diversity of different silver pastoral systems, and so. Um, we'd like to kind of unpack that a bit with you and to understand, you know, the decisions why or why you're deciding to do this. But maybe it's worth before that to for, for you to explain to us, you know, these different, you've mentioned it already, but maybe elaborate more or describe more these different civil pastoral systems that you've created on the farm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, again, I think a lot of people first think of just a, a grid of trees or evenly spaced rows or like an orchard, you know, spacing as as the way it can look but um i think what's important is that uh and this is also from the animal perspective like every single paddock that we move our animals through we move our animals um about once a day during the grazing season Mm. uh and you know every time they move i feel like their experience should be different than the last place they were and when i say experience i mean mostly what they're eating and what they're finding to forage in the landscape and we try to frame our grazing as and, and our, our silvopasture as habitat creation. I I have a background in sort of environmental restoration. We talk all the time about wildlife habitat um, and, and the complexities of that and that it wasn't just a uniform thing. It needed lots of different um, faces to, to work. And it's actually no different for domesticated livestock. And it's kind of a weird thing that we haven't um, – we don't talk about livestock and, and, and domestic animals in the same way we do about wildlife, but they have the same needs and mm-hmm. um, and they can really benefit from having different experiences as, as they move throughout the landscape. And um, I don't know if you've come across a book, uh, The Art and Science of Shepherding, but it's actually um, based on research done with um, 
herding groups in in France. Have you have you heard of that book? I've just ordered it actually. Okay. <laughs> think, uh, ah, right. It arrived uh, at your house, Dimitri. You're supposed to bring it to me next uh, time. I have it on my table, <laughs> and I didn't, even, I didn't even read the uh, the title. You know what? That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so we have heard of this book, apparently, Steve. <laughs> there you go. Well, well, now it's on your your must read list. So um, super. Uh, Michael Murray and uh, Fred Provenza wrote that together. And what they really do is they look at um, the ways uh, traditional French herding views the landscape and uses animals to, to both manage it and, and give the animals like healthy sustenance. Um, and what I found, what found was really compelling. One of the stories or sort of narratives in that book is um, it's often seen that, you know, the, the common folks think, oh, the, the herders are just out there kind of like letting the sheep roam and they go here, they go there, whatever, it doesn't matter. But in the book, they draw this parallel to actually that the a herder is more like a, a chef uh, crafting a meal for their animals and actually thinks about the sequencing of different foods that the animal gets. And in that sequencing, they find that the overall intake, the amount of food the animal eats, and also the health of the animal are both increased. Um, and it's through that experience of eating a little bit of high nitrogen clover maybe in the morning and then having a lighter meal of grass later on and then moving to something that's really high in condensed tannins. Often woody browse has some of the woody browse has high condensed tannins and that can help um, slow the digestion down, uh, reduce the methane output and also reduce the parasite impacts on, on grazing ruminants. So and it actually does matter. Their research shows it matters which order those things happen in. <laughs> um, okay. And so there's a lot of lessons in there to pull from. But the the take home, if we come back to the farm and some of our silvopasture things, is we don't want every single paddock to look the same. We want our silvopastures to all be sort of different to a degree. So there's a there's a continuum from really dense forest to completely open pasture. And, and then there's a lot of in between about density of trees, types of tree spacing, types of species. So we're actually looking to not have the entire farm in any one type, but actually vary that throughout. So some thick, dense woods are really great in the fall and winter for us. Those are sheltered areas that don't actually uh, aren't open enough to provide light to the forest floor and won't ever grow forages which is good because in the fall and the winter, we don't want our animals actually grazing because there's nothing to eat. It's not going to regenerate. What we want them to do is, is be comfortable and, and eat the hay that we give them, right? That's, that's that time mm -hmm. of year. So those are the sheltered areas, and that's the most extreme, most dense forest. And then we have a lot of space that we're cultivating in between, opening up the canopy enough to get that light in and establishing good forage in the understory. And then there's going to be parts of the farm where that are still open pasture, which has its own advantages during different times of the year. If everything was covered in trees, we would probably see a lull in the start of the growing season. Because what happens in civil pasture often is in cold climates is the, the, the grasses uh, are slower to start as we go from, you know, late winter to early spring. But then they tend to catch up and actually do better in the hotter parts of the season. So we actually want some areas in open pasture and some areas in some tree cover and some areas in dense tree cover. And we find that that's matching up with our kind of grazing patterns as we get a bit more sophisticated and learn, you know, a little more every single year. Wow, that's that's really interesting. And so it's it's also a question of it's not just a question of animal health um, and animal well-being, but it's also a question of productivity of food, right? So you can better balance the productivity of your land. 
Is that is that is that correct? Yeah, I think there. I think that's the beauty of it. Is it all goes hand in hand. If you are able to um, have a grazing event on a certain piece of land at the optimal time, and then move the animals so that that land can rest and regenerate. Optimally, you could regraze that same area three or even four times in, in a season in this climate. And that's, you know, that's ideal because you're getting four times the productivity than if you just put a big old fence around your whole land and let the animals just go wherever they wanted to. And that's, mm -hmm. that's where rotational grazing and civil pasture really, you can't separate those two. You have to be um, integrating both. And it also is, it relates to the, the pressure the animals can put on trees, especially young trees. Um, when you're not moving them on and giving the, the space a bit of a rest. Yeah. Um, well, there, there's a lot of things to, to unpack here, but um, I'm still, I'm still to, just to understand the, the, the kind of the, the impact of this type of diversity that you're creating. I guess that's also got a really important effect on the ecosystem services that your land provides, right? With this diversity of ecosystem, um, of ecosystems, you're also creating a um, diversity of habitat for um, biodiversity, but also I can imagine it goes um, beyond that, right? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, that's a harder thing to, it's all hard to kind of quantify and, and, and yeah, measure, sure. right? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, we, we have a neighbor who lives on, on the same land as us that is an avid birder. And I will say that um, the, both the number of birds and also the species diversity that we've seen in the last 10 years since we've, we've started working on this landscape both thinning woods and also planting trees is has really jumped remarkably. And we see species that are really rare for the area and things like that. So, so that's where we're, you know, seeing the farm as becoming more diverse over time. We can see that um, visually and, and take a note of the species and things like that. I think some of the other kind of ways to measure that are harder too, but I, I, I think that um, it's a question we're always asking is, what, where's the intersection of what's good for the, the land, what's good for our, our production and livestock goals, and what's good for wildlife or um, the larger picture? And I think there's, a, there's plenty of places to find the intersection of all those things and do that work. Whenever we aren't quite so sure, then we, we hold off and we think more, we talk to others, we research more, that sort of thing. One of the... the main questions that comes out of, um, you know, understanding your system is how do you manage with um, the complexity of this diversity in the sense, you know, you've got to move the, the animals throughout this different, these different sections. It will mean different, you know, types of management, different maybe um, um, fencing. I'm not too sure, but how do you manage the, 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 the complexity that this diversity creates when you're comparing it, for example, to another silver pasture system where it's just, you know, rows 15 meters apart of trees with pasture in between on 40 acres. And, you know, you're just, it's just kind of simple and standard. Um, and, you know, we, we can understand now that it comes with certain, it would come with certain, not disadvantages, but less advantages that this system brings, but maybe in terms of, you know, efficiency of movement or of management, it might be more interesting. So I'm curious to know what you, what you have to, to say about, you know, the complexity of, of this type of systems. Yeah, that's a really important question and, um, can, can really, arrest someone from getting started because it can feel really overwhelming. So mm -hmm. when I work with folks, I, I often encourage them to reflect on their own um, goals and, and what kind of layers of complexity they're comfortable with, because I think it's, it's a personal decision, actually. Um, 
So I like to walk the land almost every day and I like to observe and I know a lot of tree species and I'm just constantly curious and I can think about a lot of different little parts of the land simultaneously. But I know for other people that would be that'd be too much. So I think you have to find where you fall on that gradient and how much you want to, you know, uh, nerd out about it and, and, and integrate it into your life. Um, and I always encourage people to start with a, a smaller area and it's an area of the land that they can, um, as they're thinking about how to design a civil pasture, that they can both visit routinely um, and also walk through like entirely. So not just walk around, you know, the outside of some dense thicket of brush, but actually what's the area I can get into and observe and take some time to think about. And for some people that might be uh, a, a much smaller space than for others, right? So that's one thing. Um, mm -hmm. is kind of biting off smaller chunks and, and considering who you are and how that how you relate to that. Um, diversity is important on a site level, and it, it's important at different scales for different things. But one of the errors we made early on was when we were planting trees, is we would plant a row of trees, and in that row we might have five or six different species of trees that we would, you know, alternate between. You know, every other tree or every few trees would be a different species. And that's incredibly hard to manage because those trees are probably all growing at different rates. They have different needs for pruning, um, different needs for all sorts of things. And and one of the things we realized early on is we, we, we want to grow trees, but we also want to grow them fast enough so that the animals can, can start interacting with them. Uh, and so if you have, you know, even two, two species and one grows twice as fast as the other, well, you have to wait for the slowest one to be ready for animal interaction before the other ones can be opened up to it. So, so we actually plant our rows in monocultures and meaning that a single row for a paddock, we might just do in one species, but then the next row might be a different species. So diversity is not within the row, but it's within the field or within the paddock, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then we do have pat, we do have uniform patterns throughout the landscape. We look for patterns to create, you know, paddocks that are roughly the same size and then we plant trees on the edges of those paddocks. So we don't want to create um, all these wonky shapes and, you know, different sizes and things that we have to work around. So, you know, uniformity and, um, and straight lines and rows have their place. But I think overall, if we look and zoom out at the site, we see something that from a species level, from a pattern level, it has that diversity. Um, and so I think there's just finding that balance between things that's important. Since you talk about planting trees and some of the considerations that come with it, maybe you could tell us um, what trees you've planted uh, following what patterns so that we get an idea of, of that aspect of your operation. We started with a lot more, a lot, a much longer list of species than, uh, than we plant now. And I think that's important. So um, we did some test plantings early on to see what, what the site seemed to, to respond uh, too well. And um, we kind of picked a, a wide range of, of species we thought were good and then and then saw what they did on the landscape and also kind of refined our own goals over time. Uh, these days, uh, we're focused on a smaller set of trees that are, that we know have good uh, fodder value for the animals that grow well on our site, that we can easily propagate very inexpensively. I think a, a thing Sometimes you don't realize if you really want to plant trees extensively on your farm, uh, probably a farm nursery is going to be part of your essential farm infrastructure because it's 
it's not feasible for most of us to keep buying in our tree stock year after year. Um, and so propagating some of the easier species that fit well on your site is a really good way to, to go from seedlings that could cost several dollars a piece to, uh, you know, several cents a piece or something like that. Um, and so we've really, we've really refined that list down. And uh, part of it was researching for the book and really thinking about which species had, had that promise. And, and for me, it's also which species that we can plant and give a little attention to in the first years. And then, and then they're kind of good. <laughs> um, if you plant 50 acres of, of fruit trees, you have a lot of management on your hands for a long time. Uh, and that's great if you want to do it, but we only have, mm, I think a half acre in, in fruit and nut trees right now. And that's still hard for us to keep up with. So if we want to plant our farm with trees, we got to pick trees that are really adaptive to the environment and, and very resilient and can kind of take care of themselves. Uh, and so we've kind of like really, and these are great species. I was interested in the book too, like what species work um, in other parts of the world, other climates, what are, what are templates? Because I'm really interested in seeing silvopasture not just happen in little micro pockets around, but like, what would it look like to really roll it out broad scale? And I think one of the things is let's keep it simple. Let's just get a lot of trees in the ground quickly that can grow. Um, and so in my research, I really found that globally, um, in many climates, uh, mostly I'm, I'm thinking still, you know, temperate climates was the focus of the book and things like that. But um, we find these uh, species that just do incredibly well at all sorts of different elevations, all sorts of different uh, rainfall regimes, all sorts of different patterns. Uh, and poplar and willow just kept coming up to the top as like really good places to start. And probably one of the reasons is because you can take a cutting of that, those trees, stick it in the ground, it'll basically grow another tree. <laughs> yeah. If we, if we could do that with more trees, we would, we, agroforestry wouldn't be such a, such a niche thing, right? It'd be, it'd be much more common. Uh, Agreed. So, so those are great and they're easy. Uh, they provide a lot of nutritional benefits to livestock. If you wanted to think about feeding them out, um, they provide a lot of um, benefits to, uh, water areas and riparian plantings. Um, and they can produce a lot of biomass, whether that's beneficial for the site or uh, I, w I went to a farm in Canada during an agroforestry conference where they were uh, using willow as a power source for the farm, um, as their electricity source. So they're growing it on the edges of the fields and then using that to power the farm. You know, So there's lots of different ways it can be integrated into other systems. So those are great foundations. And actually in New Zealand, which is a great place to look for, um, for established, uh, uh, you know, institutional and government supported grass grazing systems, uh, New Zealand is certainly far ahead of many other places in the world. There's been active research and promotion of willow and poplar as part of grazing systems um, for a long time there. Okay. Um, so I think there's good promise there. The other pieces I think we need to add are trees that have uh, really dense uh, nutrient composition, probably globally in the temperate climate, the most commonly used one would be mulberry. Um, and it's one of the highest uh, sources of protein and nutrients that actually is digestible by even animals that just have one stomach like pigs and, and poultry. This is a tree that's being used in China as a pig feed source. They'll actually harvest the leaf material and pelletize it and feed it as a pig feed. And then for us, the other one that's really key is our trees that fix nitrogen. Um, and, and so they're therefore are very fast growing. 
and also um, are helping rebuild soil health. So our go-to in this climate is, is black locust because it not only fixes nitrogen, um, uh, it, it also is, it produces an incredibly rot resistant wood. And so that's really valuable for a lot of, you know, other projects around the farm. And have you planted all of these then on your farm um, or have you chosen only a few? So we we're, we're focused on, um, on those, those mainly those species. Like I say, we have some orchards, we have different things going on, but, but when we look at the broad acre part of the farm, that's, those are the main ones that we're focusing on at this point. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, um, what led you to to want to include trees in pasture? Because arguably you could say, well, I have kind of forest areas where I'm going to uh, rotate my animals and utilize that space, manage them with animals. And then I have my open pasture, which I keep as a different ecosystem. But clearly you felt the need to have, a, you know, bringing in trees into open pasture. Could you explain us a bit the, the reasoning and maybe uh, when is it a good idea and maybe when when maybe we should be cautious of that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I... <laughs> couple things. One is uh, a real interest in, in the carbon sequestration efforts that, that we all need to be engaging with. Uh, so when we're thinning the woods, we're not necessarily in the short term, like storing carbon, we're often releasing carbon, right? <laughs> um, but when we're planting trees and fields, we're actively engaging with carbon sequestration. And that when we talk about uh, the climate benefits of civil pasture, it is exclusively talking about trees in pasture. That is where there's a lot of promise for having productive farm systems and sequestering carbon. And, um, and those fast growing tree species and shrub species that have really dense fibrous root systems. So some of the ones I mentioned, there's others. Um, hazelnut's a good example of a shrub species that's incredibly fast growing, has very dense root systems. These are, these are really the powerhouses of carbon sequestration. And so that's an important goal for our farm. Um, the shade and shelter value to our animals. So in the in the hotter months, they want to be under shelter. They want access to shade. They don't want to just be in the open sun. Um, we find uh, really good value in having pretty widely spaced, you know, uh, 20 meters, 60 feet or so uh, rows of trees that they can access in their paddocks and benefit from some periodic shade throughout the day. And also I've mentioned our farm's pretty windy, so they get some benefit um, shelter from the wind. Um, and then the other thing that I uh, am digging into more and have a lot of questions about, but we know is, is true is when we bring trees into pasture, um, we are increasing the fungal presence in the soil of the pasture. So open pastures, grasslands tend to be bacteria dominated soils, but when we add trees, we bring a fungal presence there. And that's not only good for soil health, for cycling of nutrients and water, but also again for carbon sequestration. And the newest science is really showing that where carbon lives in tree-based systems is actually a lot in mycorrhizal fungal networks. It's not, it's definitely in the trees, of course, it's definitely in the root systems, but a lot of it's being cycled and held long-term in fungal networks. And so I think that's a really important aspect long-term is to see our, our soils, which have been often cleared and stripped um, that fungal presence is, is greatly diminished. And so we want to be active in bringing that back. And I think there's just, there's no, there's no way that doesn't help every aspect of the farm, uh, big and small. I'd like to get a better idea of when you are planting into the pasture, um, what kind of spacing you've chosen in be between the lines, even, you know, 
how dense do you plant the trees on the line and what kind of or or if you don't plant in lines what kind of pattern do you use would it be possible to get a brief overview because i imagine the full answer is very complex <laughs> but it would be great to have a brief overview of how that works and the kind of the decision making process that you that you um, choose our approach is is kind of different with each each area and um like i say we often think about the uh, intersection between the what the land needs and, and our grazing system and how that can be efficient. Um, so sometimes we'll think more about planting trees on in straight rows and grid, sort of a grid pattern. And sometimes the contour of the land provides us a really good template to, to map our trees off of. Um, so we might pick a contour line and then do parallel rows from that line. Um, which is something we did at least initially early on. Uh, and I think that um, we learned the hard way. <laughs> if you start planting trees, you should accept that many trees will probably die in the process, <laughs> both both because that's what trees do and because you're learning. <laughs> that's okay. Um, Mother Nature plants, you know, per acre, uh, draws upon uh, 100,000 seeds from falling from the sky, being blown in, coming up from the soil, animals bringing them in, 100,000 seeds per acre to produce a finished forest of 100 to 200 trees. So there's great, <clears throat> there's a lot of trees that start and and don't live to be, you know, in this climate, sometimes <clears throat> um, they could live 300, 400 years old, right? But most of the trees don't live that long and um and so that's important to understand is when we plant a seedling, it's it's one of those 100,000 seeds. They may not all make it. <laughs> and so we, we try to mimic what Mother Nature does, which is to plant really densely and then thin. Uh, so our rows of trees tend to be um, where we'll, we'll plant trees um, as close as a meter, three feet apart, uh, and no greater than uh, two meters or six feet apart. So we really want to plant them densely. Um, and the only exception to that would be if I have like a really nice, you know, uh, grafted tree, um, that has a lot of extra value to it, right? A lot of selection, a lot of thought and care gone into it. I'm going to give that more space and, and, and baby it a bit more, but I'm talking about planting on a broader scale with seedlings. Um, and so that's what we often think about. And then we tried, uh, early on pretty rows that were often very close together. We found over time that sheep, it, it should be at least 60 feet or, or I guess 20 meters um, between rows um, to effectively have a good grazing lane. And I think it would probably be um, up to double that width for, for cattle and things like that. So we really want to start with wider alleys and then we can always fill them in. So if you imagine starting with two wide alleys on either side of a grazing paddock, if those trees grow up and the animals can then interact with them, well, then you can shift where your paddocks are, your fence lines, and you could plant, you know, a next set of rows in between those ones that are established. Um, and so if you wanted to have a denser planting long-term, that might be a good idea. Um, another key factor is to think about that fencing and protection of trees is always going to be cheaper when you, when you do it to groups of trees versus individual ones. So whether you do rows or you plant in clusters, it's better to think about fencing and protection in in a in a group sense than an individual tree 
sense because you're, it just becomes really cost prohibitive and difficult to work around you know individual trees. So not always the case, but I, in general, if you're thinking about how am I going to do this on a lot of a lot of land, um, I think those things are going to help make it you know a much more efficient process and, and much more likely to succeed. Could you tell us a bit more about the difference between planting in lines and in clusters and the kind of advantages uh, and disadvantages associated to each? It depends a bit on the species of the tree. So some trees, um, you know, we see out in the natural world, they grow in thickets and that's how they prefer. Like, uh, uh, you know, poplar stands actually genetically are sometimes all the same same species. They've they've grown from root suckers and it can be just literally one one genetic parent that's that produces all this offspring <laughs> um and so they want that kind of habitat and that kind of environment so that can kind of make sense in some contexts um i think that uh uh there's again the the patterning of of clusters or rows or individual trees is a bit about the tree and a bit about the landscape and a bit about how you want to manage it all at once so there's never one that's that's the best. Um, there's, there's a combination of those things. That's the best for the specific place and at a specific time, I'd say too. (laughs) Um, so, uh, we found that, um, for instance, um, we, we're often doing cluster planting in some of the, the wetland and riparian areas. Um, and that's sometimes because the animals actually aren't engaging with those areas as much and, and the wildlife can have more of an impact. And so it's easy to kind of fence them out and leave them be. Um, the areas that we're grazing more frequently, which would be the open fields that we've established trees, um, we find that rows tend to be uh, a bit more easy to manage. And we're just using our existing portable fence to also keep our livestock off the trees at the same time. So we're not having two fencing systems or anything like that. Um, yeah. Do you usually use um, portable fence uh, to exclude from the trees from the animals? Or how do you kind of deal with these first few years where you, you don't want animals um, interacting with those young trees? Yeah, I mean, basically, we, we, don't have any, we don't have any permanent fence. We haven't had any permanent fence, I should say, until this year. Um, we're finally putting some permanent fence in our, our winter paddock area. But we um, didn't have that luxury when we got to the farm sometimes you get a farm that has fencing um and actually that was kind of nice because we weren't beholden to that decision uh and we we were able to tuck the animals in a lot of kind of edges and areas that if we had a permanent fence perimeter fence that probably would have been excluded because often those uh permanent fences you know keep the woods out and keep the animals in the in the pasture so we were able to play a lot with shapes and size and and patterns like that which was nice and we use a lot of the just just um, foldable, you know, net fencing works great for sheep. Yeah. And it's slow when you start, but once you get the hang of it, it I think it's a pretty efficient way to go. We, we, we do some of that. We also do, um, you know, a triple run of the of the single strand poly wire. We'll run that in between. So often what we'll do is we'll use the net fencing as a perimeter and then we'll subdivide paddocks with the with, you know, usually three strands of poly wire. Um, because that's a bit quicker to put up. And then we can have an area where they're grazing there for seven to 10 days and moving through different smaller paddocks. And then we can move the whole the whole bit somewhere else on the land. Um, so it works pretty well. Just a, a quick question here. It might be a bit uh, of a rookie question, but why not use the three-strand wire um, 
for all around? Is it not safe enough for the whole, I mean, for the whole fencing infrastructure? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For sheep, right? Uh, in this context. The, the, I, I, I worked with cattle for many years before we got sheep. And the one thing I miss is that you could keep them in sometimes with just a single strand of poly wire if they're trained mm. to it. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you almost didn't need anything. The sheep are a bit more, you know, temperamental. Of course, you could have goats and pigs, which it feels like they get up in the morning with the goal of getting out of whatever fence you've created for them. Uh, <laughs> but the sheep, I would say... Um, so lambing's a factor. We have our lambs running with our ewes, um, and they'll get underneath. You know, if there's not enough strands that aren't hot enough, they'll get underneath and start causing trouble. The ram lambs, in particular, like to try to go under and over, <laughs> and just have a have a good time. They're a bit more rambunctious. Um, yeah, I would say it's mostly um, it's mostly that factor is that you know fencing is potentially both a psychological and a physical barrier, but the net fencing provides a bit more of a physical barrier as well as is electrified versus I feel like the strand is really more psychological. Um, okay. Cause even, you know, our, we have older ewes that, you know, if we don't, if we don't move them at the right time, they're sheep are fully, most sheep breeds are, are willing to go along with your grazing plan until you don't move them soon enough. And when they're ready, you know, they'll start making <laughs> troubling decisions about, you know, breaching the fence they'll start deciding when to move or when not yeah they know the grazing plan better than you do <laughs> yeah so a big rookie mistake we made was we used to have just enough fencing for maybe one or two paddocks at a time and we weren't you know we're not we're not on the farm full-time we have other jobs um supporting us as well so you know we weren't always able to set them up at the right time during the week and so we'd have all this kind of we weren't able to move them when the grass was telling us it was time to move or when the sheep were because we had to set up the fence. So the okay. take home was we now have enough fence for four to five paddocks at a time. And we'll set that up all at the beginning of the week. And we pretty much have a week's worth of paddocks ready to go so that we're moving the animals when they're ready or the grass is ready or both rather than when we have time to do it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, taking a step back to um, the you know design and implementation of these different um of these systems of the tree systems on pasture um there's something quite tempting when you start integrating elements to integrate many different elements by that i mean instead of integrating just you know a fodder tree as you mentioned like uh, willow into a pasture there's a temptation to include a tree that can be or or, or, or different trees that can also produce nuts that can also produce wood and that can be pollarded for for fodder um, and for firewood, for chips, you know, there's kind of this temptations when you this temptation when you get into these systems to over um, <laughs> over integrate, if I can call it this. And I'd like to know about your take on this. Um, when is it worth to add many different yields to a pasture, and when not? What are the limits of this kind of thinking? Yeah, I think. Um, well, I mentioned early on we we planted a lot of different species and I don't, I, I feel like there's this, uh, there's this thing that afflicts a lot of us in agroforestry, which is that in the winter we get these catalogs of trees and we start thinking about what we could possibly do in the coming season. These <laughs> catalogs come in and it's very easy to, to add feeling, yeah. this and 25 of this to the shopping cart. Right. And, and then you, you pay for it and then you forget about it. And suddenly in the spring, you've got this boatload of trees coming and you don't even know where you're going to put them, right? That's like <laughs> something we've done so many times. Uh, 
And so what I would say is um, one, one way to temper that is to ask yourself the question, you know, um, how many species can I get to know um, in a season uh, as intimately as I might get to know a good friend? <laughs> um, so not just knowing their name uh, or, or, um, or where they might like to be planted, but like, what's their root structure like? Um, what's their branching structure? Do they need to be pruned in the first year? When do they flower? When do they set seed? Um, you know, what, what insect and, and pest pressure might they, they uh, experience? Um, all sorts of different things, right? So it's not just knowing a couple of things, but really getting to know a few species at a time, I think is one of the things I wish I had done earlier, uh, is take the time to do that. And so, you know, it's okay to start with a couple and then add on as you, as you go. Um, and in the same way with the yields, it's beautiful in your mind conceptually. And again, I think this happens a lot in the winter. We think and we dream about all the possibilities of what we could do. Um, and then it comes to when we actually are on the ground, what can we do? What, what do we actually, uh, with all the realities and the, the constraints of, of life and, and the ecosystem, like what are we actually doing? Um, and I don't visit successful farms that have you know, a hundred different products. What people tend to do over time is they try a bunch of stuff and then they refine it down to just a handful of things that actually work well for them. Like, oh, my body likes doing this thing. You may think you want to grow a bunch of um, wood for chipping, let's say, but if you work behind a wood chipper for one day, <laughs> I know that <laughs> I, I now exclusively um, trade usually with a local arborist to just deliver us wood chips. Cause I'm, I don't want to stand behind a wood chipper all day. I have no desire to do that. We've done that on like, you know, tens of days in, in, in Greece on Mazzy farm, like chipping olive, uh, <laughs> yeah. pruning has been like this crazy task. So I totally get what you're saying. You like end up with this cute little pile. Right. And you're like, Oh, that's, exactly. I worked for four hours and I think I can mold trees. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, so it's important to think about and, and learn because in your mind you can imagine this is all going to be great. But um, you know, what do, what do you actually want to do with your time? What what does it look like? And um, and I think less is more. I think starting with a few things and building upon that is really important. So if I add an element to my farm, how is it connected to the other elements? Um, not adding something that's completely separate, completely out of out of you know. Uh, some other other space is going to require other equipment and other expertise and things like that. So for us, back to the silvopasture, when we really thought about all the cool things that silvopasture could offer, what we decided was most important for us was planting trees for shade, shelter, and fodder for animals. That's what we we're interested in from the livestock perspective. And then we wanted to see those trees for the environment sequester carbon and um and restore good habitat for wildlife so that's already a lot of things but it's a lot less than saying yeah i want all the benefits and all the possible things so none of our trees we're not growing fence posts we're not growing stuff for wood chip material we're not trying to also produce a, a, a large crop of tree you know tree nuts or, or fruit or something like that so that's what we decided for us um and the scent the silvopasture is centered around supporting the sheep and the health of the sheep both nutritionally and sort of medicinally. Um, I have a friend up the road who has an apple uh, cider orchard and he has sheep and he also has geese and he has a much smaller group of sheep than us. He has, we have, you know, like I said, 60, 65, he runs about six or eight and he has a, a flock of 15 geese. And the reason he has those numbers 
is not because he's trying to run a profitable livestock enterprise. He's actually trying to run a healthy orchard. And if he had 65 sheep, he would be <laughs> driving himself crazy trying to feed them all summer. And what he wants to do is take care of his apples. So he has the sheep there to support his tree crop system, right? Um, and I think that's a really important distinction. I think that if you want to go into a tree crop system, you can have livestock, but probably at much smaller numbers and density than if you want to have a livestock system. Because I don't think the numbers often um, match up. Uh so yeah, instance, we, did a, we did a grant project where we actually looked at raising ducks in our in our shiitake yard to reduce the slug damage we were experiencing. And our proposal was, oh, this will be great. We'll have ducks. We can uh, reduce slug damage, and we can also raise a, a meat, uh, meat duck. Um, but after doing that for two years, we crunched the numbers, and we realized that for slug protection, we actually only needed about 20 ducks. But to run a good meat enterprise, we needed to raise at least 300 a year. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> and 300 ducks in the woods does a lot of damage actually to the to the leaf cover on the forest floor. So it's actually not a positive effect on the ecosystem, right? So, so I just like to offer those because um, the number of animals, the density, and all the different types of crops people often want to marry, they don't always match up. And so you have to kind of think, well, what are my cash crops? And what are my subsistence crops and which elements might support, you know, the cash crop. Uh, and, and, and I think you can find a lot of different combinations that work, but very few farms that I know of do, you know, a massive nut or fruit orchard, as well as a, a, a very large livestock operation. They're usually focused on, on coming at it from one angle or the next. Well, that's, I think that's some really good advice. I can definitely identify to to that trying to pile everything on top of each other and, and not necessarily thinking it well through um the, the the clock is ticking though and there is something that i wanted us to talk about is uh animal fodder and um a bit of the behavior of animals could you tell us you know how much of uh tree fodder do your sheep uh, can eat and you know what kind of proportion of their diet does it represent so uh it depends on the year uh, and we're, we're very much figuring this out. This is why we got into civil pasture was because in 2016, we'd already started planting trees on the farm. We were playing with different things, but the word and the concept of really intentionally doing civil pasture really hit home um, as more of just like a curiosity in 2016 when we had the driest year I've ever experienced here. Um, and apparently one of the driest years on record in this part of the world. Um, and during that time we did our, we had this beautiful, uh, rotational grazing plan. We moved the animals around the farm. We did, we did our first rotation in the spring. We came back to the, you know, that first paddock and the grass hadn't regrown at all. It, it was just, it had shut down and it was, uh, wow. particularly intensive drought coupled with really extreme heat. And so the animals were like feeling that as well. Um, and it was a point in time when we uh, saw our, our fellow farmers, you know, buying up all the hay they could find from other parts of the state or the country, you know, really searching for that. People were draining their ponds. It was sort of this thing where we're like, oh, when these things hit, like we're, none of us are really ready for this. Like, what does it look like to be ready when stuff gets hard? Um, for us, we decided with our Catans at that time to try browse grazing them. Basically, we... We stopped grazing them on the pasture because we knew that would do damage. And we started fencing them in these large woody uh, hedgerows and edges and all the parts of the farm that we had hadn't paid attention to basically in the first four or five years. 
said, oh yeah, we'll get to them someday. We'll clear them out. But they became really essential. And our animals um, lived off of this woody vegetation for about 45 days without any grass. It was just all woody vegetation. Um, wow. And, and we, I mean, at that point we had a very dense, uh, again, these were very dense areas. No one had ever managed them. So there was a lot of material available. And what happened was our work pattern shifted from moving them every day, moving fencing to going in and, and cutting trees down with loppers and hand saws and chainsaws and actually thinning stuff. Um, and we actually just did that again a bit this year, a little less intense, but we had a abnormally dry year, which uh, wasn't as extreme, but we certainly saw some dry patterns and it was a very cold and late spring. And so the grass never really kind of came online. It was very slow this year, but we put our animals in a new area of woods and, and fed them a substantial amount of their food this summer as well from, from the tree fodder. So that works uh, for now. Um, the key is that these are areas of the land that, again, have been neglected from management for a long time. So there's a lot of stuff there for them to eat. And as we keep kind of hitting them hard with these more extreme seasons, we're seeing, you know, we don't know what the, the response is going to be uh, long term. Um, so for us, fodder is, is an emergency food source. And it's something that we're realizing very quickly that we have to manage in order to sustain long term because it's not uh, trees are not going to work in the same way as grasses where I can graze it, rest it for 30 or 40 days and then come back and graze it again. Um, frankly, we don't know exactly the recovery and what that looks like. And that's something that um, we all in the agroforestry world need to need to do some investigating on and, and share our findings. Um you know, all that being said, what we do know is that um, there's ample vegetation out there. Uh, it's just a question of figuring out how to manage it. And and I, I was fortunate. Uh, I've been over to England a few times and visited some remnants of some of the coppice uh, forestry systems that are still being managed there. Um, and you can see when it's actively managed in an intentional way, how much vegetation can be produced um, and sustained on a, on a small piece of land. So I think it's a question of what does it look like to, to potentially get there. But for now, it's an emergency food source for us. And it's also, we see it as a nutritional supplement. <laughs> so in a normal year, we'll do a good amount of pruning, we'll do a good amount of thinning, and we'll bring stuff to the animals. What we find with tree fodder is that the nutrient density is much higher than in most of the pasture forages. Um, hmm. And then we know things like willow, I mentioned. Willow, there's a lot of research about the, the condensed tannin value. And the tannins in willow, um, if fed to animals, will reduce the, the parasite um, pressure on their system. And it will also reduce their methane. Um, that's That's been pretty well documented. And you'll see in the animals, they'll only eat so much willow because it it's harder for them to digest. It's It's like... Drink, drink a nice uh, light wine versus something really high in tannins, right? It kind of fills you up or like, yeah. or like a stout versus uh, an ale, <laughs> you know, these things, yeah. same kind of thing. It's like, oh, I can only have so much of this. So it, it has that medicinal benefit. So we make sure that the, the sheep are getting access to willow, you know, ideally weekly through their grazing cycle. They're not necessarily needing it every day, but we want to make sure they're kind of dosed up on it and they have it available to them. Um, and so that's kind of how we see it now, long-term. Um, we'd love to be planting what are called fodder blocks, which are much more dense, intentionally planted areas that we graze a little bit harder. And we hope to do research to see how they respond. But that's going to you know, take some years to both establish and manage and really start to understand. 
But then if you were um, taking the, the coppice example, uh, could you imagine systems where they can harvest that matter themselves instead of you having to prune the trees and bring it to them? I think so. I think um, we're doing a lot of pollarding of existing trees now because we want to have control over when they hit it. Um, but I think, yes, I think what we see, and there's there's definitely more examples in the tropics in silvopasture, we can see areas getting fully um, coppiced. Uh, and there's examples with um, entire fields being planted, sometimes 40,000 stems to the acre, and then just getting grazed wholesale, um, and then re recovering and being able to sometimes be grazed uh, again in the same season. Now that's again in the tropics, so we have a different climate that allows for that. Um, but yeah, I think those kind of things are feasible. Um, and, but, you know, we need to try stuff out on a smaller scale and start to understand it. it's going to get real specific to the region and the part of the world. But I, I think there's great potential in it. And what we know is that woody uh, plants do much better to, 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 in terms of growing and sustaining themselves in extremely dry and extremely wet scenarios. Um, so all these dry years, what we see is that the pasture can crisp up really quickly, but the trees kind of look normal, right? Like they, they're still doing their thing. They're very efficient at that. So whether we're, you know, thinning larger trees, coppicing, pollarding, playing with these things, I think what we know is it's a reliable source of vegetation. It's not, that's not the question. The question is how we manage it to really sustain it in the long term. But do you see ways... Um in which we could use fodder uh, to feed animals that would be efficient in time? Because if I understand correctly, at the moment, either you're in a position where you're in extreme times, so somewhere you're just not counting your time, because if your animals have nothing to eat, obviously you'll do whatever it takes for them to have food, or you're in like normal years where you just give them a small amount of fodder so it doesn't take that much time. So, But I'm wondering if, if we could think of a system when in normal years... Um, Uh, maybe with those like fodder blocks, do you think that would be reasonable in terms of uh, management and the number, the amount of time you have to spend pruning and, and bringing that matter to them? I think it's feasible for certain species. I think there's going to be, um, again, some of the ones I mentioned before are probably our best candidates to figure out. And um, one of the things we have done is um, some of the willow that we've coppiced is, uh, does really well. It produces these nice um, multi-stemmed, you know, clusters of regrowth and, we'll take that cluster and we'll actually tie some twine around it and bundle it up and then we'll just cut it at the base. And then we just have that whole bundle that we throw on the tractor and bring to the animals, right? So that's a lot more efficient um, in many ways, but I, I, I get what you're saying. And I think that it's important to think about ways that we can have the animals freely browse material as well as ways that we can kind of harvest and, and choose when to feed out material. So um, sure, I think it's theoretically feasible. It's certainly not the it is not the foundation of our grazing. The foundation of our grazing program is still good pasture forages and still establishing good forage in tree systems. I think the tree stuff, we can continue to kind of pepper in there and then figure out over time what it might look like. Yeah. There's a really interesting, um, or there are some really interesting machines, um, or at least what seemed interesting to me when I was uh, looking at them. 
that uh, can harvest, um, that can copies actually, um, for example, willow, um, and some of them that can actually, um, that were much more heavy duty and maybe not so feasible for a farm, maybe as a, as, in a, cons- in, in a, as, as a groupment of different farms, but that could um, literally harvest willow and, and bale it as well. So that, I think that might be something interesting to look at uh, in these systems to try, you know, mechanize the harvesting, the, the copying and the pollarding that can easily be transported to other areas or can be easily just dropped on the floor and get the animals in there. I don't I don't know if you've got some ideas about, I'm sure you've seen some of these machines. Yeah, and a lot of them, there's been a lot of work in the States around using like willow as a biomass uh, plant. And so there's plenty of uh, data and research about, you know, basically planting willow, almost like you plant corn in a field and having this dense stand come up and then harvesting it all. A lot of that machinery though, like chipped it up. So it wasn't, you know, it's not as good for a food source, but there's, uh, there's definitely other machinery that uh, could potentially be adapted or utilized. And um, it's it, it's like any agricultural challenge. I, I We grow elderberry a bit and we're, we're working on figuring out how to make that efficiently work as a, as a product to sell. Um, but it's very labor intensive to harvest. And, and we see this time and time again with agricultural products. It's, it's not a question of if it can be done. It's a question of if there's enough will and interest from folks to say this is important enough to develop that machine or that piece of equipment right um and i think that um as more and more people get interested as we we think about these things uh, whether we're adapting some existing equipment or we're coming up with something new i don't think that's the limiting part it's it's the will for us to want to see trees as an integral part of our landscape and our grazing system and that's still the hill i'm trying to climb is getting people excited about that because <laughs> a lot of a lot of farmers i don't know how it's what it's like for in your all's experience in europe but in the states I, i'll do these talks and conferences and they, these farmers will come up to me and say well you know i was told to take all the trees out of my pasture and now here you are telling me to put all these trees in the pasture you know this is a, a psychology that's been persistent for for quite some time yeah. and that's actually probably like my lifetime's worth of work is hopefully to help <laughs> help uh, change that a bit, and then maybe uh, you know then we'll start talking about the next level, which is really scaling and and doing these things, and and that that might be the realistic pace this has to happen at. I don't know. <laughs> I want I want to dig deeper just on one aspect here because um, if I can explain one of the experiences that we saw in Greece is where there was we were in a region where there are a lot of shepherds and the guys there are are pollarding their mulberries. They actually, there's mulberries for decorative purposes that are planted everywhere in the towns, in the villages, yeah. and also on the farms. And so there's something decorative and beautiful there. And um, they're pollarded. And so all the farmers go into, uh, during the, the end of the summer, they go into when the pasture is starting to be, starting to struggle a lot, especially in that climate or when, you know, they're basically the, the fields that they've left to dry um, as a storage, as a technical term for this, but I forgot the name, um, dry stock, or I don't know what it is. Um, so that when that's all been eaten, they go into the village and they, they're actually the, the arborists of the, of the villages and they prune all the trees. They put um, um, with chainsaws or with loppers and uh, they put it in their, in their pickup trucks and they take it to their, to their animals. And ju- just to go a bit in more detail into what you said, because I'm, I'm very curious about this, for your operation, your scale, um, um, it doesn't, you're saying that it doesn't quite make sense, economically speaking, like in terms of your time um, and yeah, in terms of the value of your time to go into a system that you've planted and to pollard trees with a chainsaw, with loppers, and to, to have that as, as, as um, an important source for the animals. Is that why you're not using it or... 
If not, what's the reason why you're not uh, doing that specific management type? Well, I think we are. It's just a, it's again, it's more of a, a supplement than like the main course, right? Um, okay. And I think it's mostly the volume of material and uncertainty about its recovery and not wanting to overdo it. Um, I've been mostly pleasantly surprised at the recovery. And you have to think, you know, uh, let's say a mulberry tree in Greece that's been there for 80 years is going to have a much different recovery track than a mulberry I planted five years ago. You know, that yeah. the ability of an established system to regenerate is really powerful. And if you have a, one, one of the things that's been beautiful working with uh, farmers from all over is some of them realize that they have these legacy trees, they have older things that have been managed in this way in the past and that they could take that back on. And they get really good regeneration from those older trees and, and start to see them as so valuable to their um, operation. I think that's a big thing. Um, and for us, a lot of the woody land, like I mentioned, is covered in you know these so-called invasive species, which like one of the most common that's on our farm um, is we, we know it as European buckthorn. Um, mm-hmm. And it uh, responds to grazing and pollarding and pruning so well, like it has no problem with uh, <laughs> with getting hit and, and recovering. And it's it's ironic because a lot of the conservationists around it, around them get really mad at it because it's so hard to eradicate. You can't get rid of it. You can't cut it down. You can't dig it out. You know, you can't even put it pesticide on it. It won't kill it. But that kind of resiliency is exactly what I want in a fodder tree, right? Because I want to be yeah. able to have the animals. Um, hit it, beat it, eat it, and it to come back. Um, and so we're looking for those indicators in the landscape and we can, we'd rather manage the ones that exist and are, are showing those than, you know, tear those out and put some other species in. So I think there's plenty to work with, but yeah, from an economic perspective, we put the time into harvesting when we have it and it can be really quick. Like, so we keep a pair of loppers in the uh, cart that we, we, we move with the sheep that has the, um, the battery for the, 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 you know, the energizer in it. And we have a nice handsaw and all that. And so anytime we have 10 minutes, we can harvest quite a bit of stuff for them to gnaw on. It's not going to feed them their entire diet, but it's a bit of a supplement. And so, no, we do that pretty routinely around the farm. Um, but it's still important to have the foundation, I think, of a grazing system be in the forages. And and I think it's a good it's a good encouragement for new folks to say, okay, I'm, all, I'm not trying to replace everything. I'm trying to just add in. Um, yeah. And w- again, when you start doing the research, you really see that the value of the woody brush is dense nutrients um, and also resiliency to, to extreme weather. And so those are just things to kind of keep thinking about. I confirmed to you that um, in Greece, the, the trees that they are pollarding are, are at least 30 years old, usually, you know, minimum 20. And, but, and they hit them every year. Huh? They, they take off everything, all of the yeah. branches every year. And then the next year, they're another, like, in some cases, uh, two meters, three meters uh, tall, um, you know, like a regrowth. Um, very dense. They, they, they provide shade for whole terraces. I wanted to ask as well, just in terms of uh, understanding um, the animal behavior, you mentioned that you had a specific breed that's actually a pretty good browser. Um, how important is the breed then in terms of um, sheep or cows or um, eating that fodder? Probably pretty important. I, you know, we haven't tried you know, 10 different breeds side by side to see. Um, I know, again, um, I'd recommend folks uh, check out uh, Fred Provenza's work. 
um, which is not just about the the French herding we talked about, but also a lot of research he did um, in the U.S. around animal preference for browse and different different uh, foods. And uh, they found you can train and, and, and teach animals. They may not always have the instinct or the familiarity with certain foods, but you can definitely work with them to to start eating more of those in their diet. So, um, but obviously that can take more time and energy. So I think my recommendation is you, you, you select a species, uh, that best matches your landscape and, and the things you're going to be feeding it. And then recognize there might be some training or some, some work along the way. But I, I, I do think that a lot of them can, can learn, uh, to value it. Um, they just may not be familiar. So like our friends, uh, up the road have a sheep dairy and their, their sheep get, uh, pretty pampered um you know they're 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 balancing diet more they're feeding out a lot of alfalfa and and sort of um you know they're milking them every day and so they're getting this this dose of things as they go through uh food to to keep up the nutrition and so they're a lot less um interested in you know the scrubby brows on the edge of the farm because they know they're going to go get the pampered you know spa treatment when they go to the milking parlor um and so they're not as interested but uh, our animals are used to fending for themselves and kind of finding what they can in the landscape and so they're really um game for trying almost anything and a lot of plants even that i've seen on toxic plant lists are actually things that our animals readily eat and are interested in um which is really interesting. So I think it all depends on, on that relationship. Um, and, uh, and so there's, it's part nature and part nurture, I guess, is the, is the short answer to that. Um, I, one, one more thing I want to say about breed. It's really important when you select a breed, not just those characteristics, but also your local community. Um, so we almost picked a really obscure sheep breed, but we decided not to because, um, we would be the only people within like a five hour radius that had this breed, which makes it really hard to diversify your breed, uh, find a ram, all these kind of things long-term. And so partially why we chose Catans is because we could find five or six other farms pretty close by that had the, had the same breed and were interested in keeping that a pure, a pure stock. And that's been really helpful from us, uh, you know, being able to raise and, and keep a healthy, healthy genetic pool in our, in our uh, flock. So, so keep that in mind, the larger, large, the larger context is also important. I think when you're, when you're selecting the type of animal. Yeah. And that's, that's super interesting. Um, but if I understand properly, then you also have, um, so you have pasture where you're establishing trees and then you're also establishing forages in, uh, wooded areas that you're thinning, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I was just wondering how, the management of that rotation within the trees, how that works, you know, um, is it much different than having them in pasture logistically, but also in t- terms of um, the timing and the density you might um, use uh, for the flock? Uh, I'm also thinking in, in terms of, you know, potential damage to the existing woods. Yeah, there's 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 definitely differences, um, but they're the same differences that I experienced with just open pasture, where at different times of the year and different different realities hit, um, you know, the, the grasses never grow all at the same rate, even within the same field. <laughs> um, it's always a bit surprising yeah. to see those variations and try to figure out why that's going on. But one of the things we learned early on with the woods is that we you really need to establish wide alleys where you can get your fencing in. Um, you know, initially we thought enough to kind of crawl through with the net fence was good, but uh, it gets stuck on every 
every twig <laughs> and we quickly realized we needed to have at least a you know four feet or so of width whatever the size of your your mower your brush hog your your tractor was a good width to to make sure you have cleared um so that you can get the fencing in and out unless you're doing something more permanent so that's i think one piece um, we try to, uh, as we've learned our grazing system, we know which paddocks are going to be really robust in the spring. We try to save the silvopasture areas. Like I said, they, they're a bit late to start as it's warming up and they also tend to do hold on better in the hot part of the summer. So for us here, we try to graze the open fields earlier in the season and then move the animals into the wooded areas, you know, during those hotter times, if we can, <laughs> try to guess when those are right because it, it's it's a bit different every year um we we formulate a grazing plan so we have a grazing plan with paddocks and and our uh, where we think we're going to move them next but it's not like we start at paddock one and and go two three four five six seven you know all the way to 45 or whatever um we often are bouncing around a bit more and that's often because we're we're seeing what's happening in the land. We say, actually, this area is ready. Let's go here first, and then we'll we'll go back to that other part. So, um, I feel like grazing is is wonderful because it forces us to be out on our farm, observing what's going on, and constantly making those decisions. But you can't ever count on it being uniform, even without a civil pasture. Um, and so, so you you're you know that farm walk, the loop walking around, seeing where your fields are, is um, is essential to to making sure everything's going to work well. On that uh, really interesting um, final note, which I think is a perfect place to stop the interview, actually. Um, um, yeah, I think it's we've covered everything that uh, we wanted to cover during uh, during uh, for, for this interview, and you've answered um, very precisely and very interestingly um, uh, all our different uh, all our different questions. So thank you so much for this. Um, I wanted to ask you something quickly as. Um, as a listener of the podcast, as you mentioned at the at the beginning, I'm curious to know what you'd like to what you'd like to hear on the podcast. What would you like to hear more of, for example, or ideally, what would you like us to? Who would you like us to interview? What would you like us to ask? What would you like us to focus on? Uh, well, there's so many things. I think. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I learn a lot from the just different stories and experiences people are having as they're implementing agroforestry you know in a lot of different contexts i think that's great so the more you know i specifically kept the book to the temperate climate because i knew i didn't have a lot of experience in other climates but i can still learn a lot from people's experience um i really feel like in agroforestry we we all need to to tap into sort of the indigeneity of of agroforestry a bit more i think there's a lot of older wisdom out there in the landscape and it's probably not people who uh maybe are online or on podcasts right like my mm -hmm. um one of my forestry mentors uh um you know doesn't have a cell phone the way i find him is i go like knock on his door <laughs> um so i don't know how that works for your podcast but you know <laughs> that that expertise and experience is so important of, of people who have been like in in landscapes for a long time you know um mm -hmm. But the other thing is I would love to connect you all with some folks like um, who are doing this, this whole tree fodder piece is I think interesting to a lot of people, but there's only, uh, there's, there's not that many people that are like drilling really deep, but there are some folks doing some cool stuff. Like in England, they're doing, they were, I don't know if they're still doing it with some research with tree hay and like, 
uh-huh. storing it for winter and then feeding it out. And I know a, a farmer up in Maine who's who's a really interesting uh, woman who is doing some cool stuff with tree fodder. So uh, okay. stuff is some people I can connect you with. Yeah, that would that would keep digging that that trench. <laughs> and um, as a final question, um, what's the top tip that you would give to a current farmer or a new farmer that's starting in silver pasture? I think we've we've hit upon it a lot. It's it's really important to start small with uh, chunks you can bite off and chew and digest, <laughs> mm-hmm. and understand that to establish trees, um, we're talking about at least uh, you know two or three seasons worth of work in one place. So when you're thinking about planting trees, it's okay if I plant a hundred trees this year. And I plant 100 trees next year. Next year, I also have to take care of those other 100 trees. And then the third year, I have to take care of the new 100 trees I plant plus the 100 I planted the year before plus the 100 I planted. So think about the number of trees you feel like you can plant and manage in a year. And if it's 10, that's great. And if it's 100, that's great. If it's 1,000, that's great. But just try try being really realistic with that. And um, you know, less is more in that sense. And... and and you can increase the the scope and the intensity of the work as you get more comfortable with the work. So start small and, and allow it to grow as it should. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. As usual, you can find all the relevant links just below in the description. And you know how to get in touch with us through our website or through our social media. We love to get some feedback from our listeners on future guests or just some ideas of questions that you'd like to hear about. So please do get in touch.